Our sermon passage today comes from Exodus 25, verse 10 through 22. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time of worship that you've already given us. Thank you for the truth that we've heard and sung together and rejoiced in. We've heard enough already to go home and worship throughout the rest of the week. Just over what you've done for us in Christ. I pray that as we dig into that a little further today, that you'd speak to our hearts through your word. Um, Say to us what you want to say to us. And... uh, Work in us, Lord. Help us to leave here having met with you in in your word and having encountered you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Ben Morrow. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer, and I'm pinch hitting for Pastor Jamie while he's away. But we are in the book of Exodus. We are in the middle of a series called Our God Saves. And so this morning we're picking up in Exodus 25. So if you're visiting with us, we're right in the middle of a series. If you're not visiting with us, I know it's easy for us sometimes to, it's, it's hard for us sometimes to come in, sit down, get our brains wrapped around, okay, where are we? What are we talking about here? So let, let's just broaden out for just a second, get a big, big, broad picture of where we are and zoom in a little bit. So we're in Exodus. This is the, the book where we talk about how God delivers his people, Israel, from the oppression of the Egyptians. He brings them out, calls them out um, to be his special people. So this is, this is the book where we've, we've already gone through how, um, how the people watched as God delivered them. Remember the story of the ten plagues. Remember the story of the calling Moses out and um, God establishing him as the, as the leader Remember, we've got the parting of the Red Sea, and they've been led out into the desert. They've watched God be victorious for them over this empire of Egypt. And now God has led this group of Israel to the base of Mount Sinai, where he is going to give them his law. And that's where we're in the middle of now. God has already begun giving Moses the law of God. We've gone through Exodus 20, where we find the Ten Commandments, and then we have... 
a, a greater exposition of the law where God starts giving more, more practical laws than just those 10, but a whole bunch of, of law for them to obey. This is, this is a section that's called the Book of the Covenant. It'll be referred back to um, through Exodus and throughout the Old Testament as the Book of the Covenant. So I want us, as we, as we dive back into Exodus, as we sit down on this Sunday morning and try to remember where we are and what we're doing, it's easy for us, if we're not careful, to approach a text where we take the text and just, in a kind of a lazy way, just kind of grab the first thing that jumps out of, at us and make some sort of application. Like, okay, that looks good. I'm going to make application. That's not why we have the scripture. That's not how the Bible works. So let's remember that God wrote very specific things, or he, had, he gave his word to very specific authors in a specific time for a specific purpose. And he had them record very specific things, and we have these things retained for us. So we want to jump in and get the meaning of what the author had to say. So when we approach a text, it's always good for us to, to stop for a second and ask ourselves, okay, what does this text say about God? What does this say about human beings? What does this say about human beings and our relationship to God? What is this text conveying here? So as we get into Exodus 25, God has been speaking with Moses up on the mountain, and he's giving him instructions for the coming system of worship for the people of Israel. Some very important details, some symbolic details, intentionally symbolic details for the worship of Israel, for, of, of Yahweh. So he's given them the idea of the tabernacle. Remember these, these um, Israelites, they were wanderers. They were in the middle of the desert. They were living in tents. And God was going to have them do that for a while. They were not going to go establish a city with brick and mortar buildings right away. They were... They were living in tents. And so God said, I want to establish a place of worship of me where the people can come to a central place in the camp and come to a special place where they can worship me the right way. And by doing that, he's giving Moses the instructions for this tent or this ornate tabernacle. Within that tabernacle, you have the central place, the special place that only the high priest could enter called the Holy of Holies. If you remember um, your Old Testament history, you'll remember that the high day, the one important day on the Jewish calendar, above everything else, there was one day called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So while the Jews celebrated different feasts, they celebrated different things, sacrifices, all these things throughout the year, they would stop what they were doing, come together and celebrate. There was this one high day on the Jewish calendar where that everything else centered around. And it was the day the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins of the people. There, we find at the center of the Holy of Holies, we find the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know about you. I know it's easy. Like when we start talking about the Ark of the Covenant, somehow Indiana Jones music starts popping up in the back of our head. Let, let's focus. I'm with you, but let's focus. Here, so maybe that'll help you at least get a good idea of what it looked like. Maybe. Maybe. But anyway, anyway, you've got the Ark of the Covenant. And more specifically, as, as Regina read for us, you've got all these, these ornate details laid out for how it was supposed to look. And in the middle of this, you had the lid or this place where the, on top of the Ark where the priest could sprinkle the blood of sacrifice and make atonement. It's called the mercy seat. 
The place of atonement, the place of propitiation, the place where the sin debt was paid for. So we're going to look at that. We're going to talk about how this points to the coming sacrifice, Jesus himself. Now again, it would be easy for us just to immediately open up the book of Exodus and say, wow, that sounds like Jesus. Yeah, that's Jesus. Yeah, this point. We can't really be so cavalier about it when we start taking pictures of the Old Testament, just saying, well, that, well that, that's Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus. But when the, Old, or excuse me, when the New Testament does this, and the book of Hebrews does, when the New Testament looks back on something and says that was a picture of this, then that's how we need to interpret it, okay? So we're going to get there. We're going to get to some passages in the New Testament that talk about this ark and talk about this mercy seat and demonstrate just what this means and what this meant to picture um, as Christ came. So this is where we are, Exodus 25. We're picking up in verse 10 where, where God gives Moses instruction on how to build the Ark of the Covenant, this central, this central thing, this central picture within the worship system that they were going to set up. If you're taking notes this morning, if you want our big idea, what, what is going to be our takeaway today? You can write this down. Christ is, Christ is our place to go for atonement for our sin. He's our place to go to find an advocate before God. And he's our place to go to experience the joy of knowing God. Let me say it again. Christ is our place to go for atonement for sin, to find an advocate before holy God, and to experience the joy of knowing God. So in other words, Christ takes care of our sin problem. He represents us before holy God as our priest, as our advocate. And he is the way we come to know God and experience God in joy and in peace. Now, we have a problem. When we start talking about the gospel, we have to start with the bad news, right? If you've been in church, if you've heard the gospel message before, you know what the bad news is, right? The bad news is what? We're sinners. The bad news, there's actually bad news in the fact that God is holy and pure and righteous and spotless. Why is that bad news? It's bad news is because we're not, right? God is who he is, and he's perfect. He's perfect. He's huge. He speaks things into existence where there was nothing. He is separate. He's God, and he doesn't need anything. He certainly doesn't need us. We are his creatures, but we're not just creatures. We're fallen creatures. We've sinned. As, as his creation, God gave us instruction, and we looked at him and said, no. And when we said no, when we sinned, we broke that relationship that, that we had in the beginning. So God created man, he created Adam, to walk with him in fellowship, to enjoy him, to know him, to experience him without any, any filter, but to, to get to walk with him in truth. And Adam broke that. He, he, he broke that relationship by sinning. And those of us who were born after Adam... We're born sinners. And that means the, the minute I'm able to start sinning, I do. Uh, almost unconsciously. It's just what I do. It's what we do. It's, it's who we are. We drink iniquity like water. It's, 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 our, it's our basic go-to. 
It's our default. We are sinners by nature. Nobody has to teach us as little kids how to be selfish, how to run away from God, how to disobey God, how to disobey our parents, how to do these things. Nobody has to teach us how to lie or steal or be mean. We do this on our own, right? Somebody, I heard a couple of people arguing over the idea that man is born sinful and that we are naturally sinful. And one guy wanted to argue against that and say, no, that's not right. Man's basically good. And the other man said, not only is man not basically good, this is one of the most observable things we teach. This is obvious. You don't believe that, I would invite you to go serve with our children one Sunday morning and be with these angels that we love these sinners that we love, <laughs> right? We don't have to teach them how to sin. We have to actually teach them what it means to walk in the right way. That's who we are. We're born that way. We're born by nature sinners. That's the bad news. That's the bad news before you get to the good news. We, can't, we, we are in need of a Savior. We are in need of help because we can't help ourselves. That's who we are born as. And, and God sent Christ in order to restore that relationship that we broke with him that sin has caused sin has caused this barrier to keep us from God God sent Christ to knock that barrier down so in in Exodus 25 let's see how we get there to Christ from Exodus Yahweh has told Moses already in the beginning of the chapter you're going to make for me a sanctuary so that don't miss this here's the purpose of it so that I may dwell with you now, think about God's intent, his purpose, his desire there. It's not just so that God could show off how great he is. He could. He's God. He could do that if he wants to. But there's more to it than that. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to interact with his people in relationship. So he says, you're going to make me a sanctuary so I may dwell with you. And then he begins laying out for Moses what the sanctuary is going to look like. I want to remind you, I've already mentioned the Day of Atonement. By the way, if you want to go read about this more in detail, you can go to Leviticus 16 and read that in detail and what that looked like. But the Day of Atonement, that one high day where the people were going to come together and worship God, I'm going to, I want to give you a few of the details what happened there. This is what, this is what God's preparing Moses for as he gives him this, these instructions. On the day of the atonement, the high priest, the one person designated by God, the high priest would wash ceremonially, ceremonially. He would put on ceremonial priestly robes. He would sacrifice for himself and his family a bull because this high priest was a sinner too. And his family, they're sinners. So they needed a sacrifice for themselves first. And once he had sacrificed a bull for himself and for the sins of his family. He would sacrifice two goats. Do you remember this? Do you remember this lesson from Sunday school maybe? Two goats. The first goat was a goat of sacrifice. The second goat was called the scapegoat. That's where we get that word, scapegoat. So the first goat, after he had made, after he had made sacrifice for the sins of himself and his family, so the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, You've got the lid on that top, that ceremonial place called the mercy seat, where he would sprinkle the blood of the bull for himself and for his family for atonement of sin. Then he would sacrifice the first goat and for the sake of the sins of the people 
as their advocate. He would come in showing blood, sprinkling blood, and, and indicate there had been a sacrifice made for the sins of the people as well. And he would represent the people there in the Holy of Holies. Finally, he would, he would go back out and they had the ceremony with the scapegoat where he would lay his hands on this one goat symbolizing the transferal of the sins of the people onto the sins of this one innocent animal. And a designated person would lead that animal out into the desert, outside the camp, away from the people, to die out in the desert alone, the symbol being that God had transferred their sins, that God was not remembering their sins anymore, that it had been taken away never to be remembered again. This is all picturesque of what was coming um, in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. All these things were given as pictures. And we're going to see that in, in the New Testament as well. Not just making that jump. We're going to see that. But all of these things put together, God already had in mind and wanted His people focused on this idea that there's coming a Savior to take care of the sin problem. That, there's, that sacrifice is needed and God was going to make that sacrifice available. Now, we know from the book of Hebrews, Jamie alluded to Hebrews chapter 9 last week. We're going to look at it again in a few minutes. But uh, we know from the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats was never going to eternally put away sin, right? It could never completely and finally take care of the sin problem. They could ceremonially for that year offer the blood of bulls and goats as God commanded, but then they would turn around, leave, go back to their business, and they would sin again, wouldn't they? And next year they'd have to do the same thing again. It was an imperfect system, the book of Hebrews tells us. Not only was it an imperfect system, the high priest was imperfect, wasn't he? Why? Well, he was a sinner. He had to had to offer sacrifice for his own sin, and he died. He would die, as the, as the verse that, that Austin read earlier. He would live his life, and then he would die, and we had to come up with another high priest to do the same thing until he lived and he died. And so it was this imperfect system that never could be eternally, um, eternally valuable. It was a picture of the, of the eternal. So Hebrews chapter 9 it's a pretty good picture of what the Ark of the Covenant, what the mercy seat is all about. So I'm going to want to focus this morning on this idea of the mercy seat. I want to give you three points. So again, if you're taking notes, feel free to write these down. Point number one, the mercy seat was a place of atonement. Number two, the mercy seat was the place of intercession. Number three, the mercy seat was a place of incarnation place of incarnation. So first of all, it was a place of atonement. The idea of atonement, you, you'll see words like it in the scripture, like propitiation. You'll see words like, um, well, you'll see atonement, or you'll, it'll talk about the cancellation of our sin debt. This is where atonement comes in. A payment, atonement is a payment that cancels our sin and takes away sin's curse. It's a blood payment, and it's a payment that take, cancels our sin and takes away sin's curse. So we talked about the bad news. We're born as sinners. Galatians tells us, though, that we're born under a curse because of our sin. Galatians 3, verse 10 says, For all who rely on the works of a law are under a curse. 
For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now here the Apostle Paul is directly quoting the book of the covenant. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 27. But he's quoting a section that at the end of it, Moses repeats to them, cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things in the book of the law. And Deuteronomy tells us, and all the people said, amen, yes, we'll do this. They were good at that. They said that a lot. They said that after, as Moses was getting ready to go up, after Moses gave them the law. Whatever the Lord says, we'll do it. Right. How good were they at that? They were worshiping a golden cow before Moses gets back down the mountain. Throughout the Old Testament, you see Israel being given instruction, and they say, yes, whatever the Lord says, we'll do it. And and turned around twice, and they've broken it completely. Sometimes you read in the Old Testament, you almost want to hear them say, hey, we'll do it this time. This time we'll be good, I promise. This is who we are. We're sinners. The Israelites were sinners, and they, they couldn't keep the covenant. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Galatians 3 does go on to say, in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ came to be that place of atonement where atonement is found. Atonement cancels our sin debt and takes away sin's curse. Walk with me to Romans chapter 3 for just a minute, please. Romans chapter 3. There's something interesting going on as Paul in the book of Romans is talking about what Christ did and how Christ brought righteousness to sinful people. And in the middle of this, he uses a word I'm going to focus on. So I want to read verses 19 through 26, a very important passage in the book of Romans, but then I want to focus in on one phrase here. So Romans chapter 3, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did you see at the beginning of verse 25 where it says the Father put Christ forward to be a propitiation by his blood? Now, if you've got got a Christian standard Bible, it's actually shown this this morning. If you have a CSB version, it actually says the word mercy seat there. That's a correct translation. The idea of that word propitiation, it means the same thing as atonement. It's that place where the sin debt is taken care of by way of sacrifice. It is that mercy seat. And Romans 3 tells us that God put Christ forward to be that place 
where sinners could come and find their payment for sin. That Christ was our mercy seat for our atonement of sin. So Christ is the place. Christ is where the wrath of God is satisfied. When he looks at my sin, when I run to Christ, he says, taken care of. Christ took care of his sin. I can accept him and be holy and just. I can be just and the justifier of a sinner because Christ's work of atonement is complete. It's an eternal work. It's a complete work. It's not temporary. It's not faulty. It's perfect. So the mercy seat was a place of atonement. I also want to see that it was a place of intercession. This mercy seat here on the ark that we're talking about, described in Exodus 25, it's where the high priest came in on behalf of the people to plead for Yahweh's mercy for sinners, for uh, for other people. He came in as the advocate, as the person standing between holy God and a sinful people who deserved wrath. He stood between them as the advocate. Now again, in that Old Testament system, this had to only be a picture. It couldn't be complete because it was a faulty system. These were sinners. These were temporal people. These were people who died. But they pointed to the one, they pointed to the one who could be that high priest for us. The text, the text tells us that the high priest would go in and advocate for the people. It would be one thing if the high priest got the opportunity because he's a special guy. He could just go in by himself, make offering for himself and his family and say, we've got that covered, that's great, and walk away feeling good about himself. But God had something much bigger in mind for that high priest. His job, his purpose, his place was to stand for the people, to stand as an advocate. And this is what leads us to Hebrews chapter 9. If you remember from our study in Hebrews a little over a year ago, Pastor Jamie walked us through a study. Hebrews was written for the purpose of showing us how Jesus is better. You remember that? So Jesus was the perfect sacrifice where the others, the Old Testament sacrifices were a picture. And where those Old Testament priests were a picture, Jesus is that better, that complete high priest. He's better. So that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. You have the old covenant of Moses, and then you have the complete new covenant in Jesus Christ, who is that perfect fulfillment of all the types and the pictures. So Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest. So I know we're doing a little page turning today, and I appreciate you staying with me. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9 real quick. Hebrews chapter 9, because I want you to see this for yourself. This alludes directly back to our text in Exodus 25. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. This is what we're talking about. In which a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. By the way, I love that verse. I love that verse. It it tells me 
whoever wrote the book of Hebrews even said, man, there's stuff I want to talk about and we, can't, we don't have time to go down that rabbit trail. Let's focus. It gives me hope because I want to run these rabbit trails too. There's so much here. But even the writer of scripture had to say, hey, I got some things. Nah, we can't talk about that right now. <laughs> Let's just keep going. I would love to talk about the angels and what they were looking into, and what they signified and what redemption looked like from their point of view. That's something to think about. But Hebrews moved on, so we're going to move on, okay? Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, that's speaking of that inner room where the ark is, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not, meant, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Chapter 10, verse 14 goes on to tell us that by a single offering, he has perfected forever, for all time, those who are being sanctified. That's us. He's done that complete work as our perfect high priest. So Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that not only, not only that Christ was a perfect sacrifice that made eternal atonement, atonement for sin, securing for us an eternal redemption, but he's entered back into heaven itself to the very throne of Yahweh to intercede for us as a high priest, not like the old high priest who had to first make payment for his own sin and plead for forgiveness himself first, but as a perfect, spotless, acceptable high priest who the Father is pleased to hear and to accept and to um, answer his petitions. And that high priest, Jesus, isn't praying for himself. He's praying for us. He's praying for you. Now think about that the next time you're discouraged. Jesus is praying for you. In fact, Hebrews tells us that he ever lives to make intercession for us. It's, it's what he does. He's doing that work of high priest right now. So he's not only the payment for sin... But he's also the one that administers the payment. He's not only the sacrifice. He's the one administering the sacrifice, that acceptable high priest that administers the sacrifice. So the mercy seat is not only a place where we find atonement for our sin, but it's the place where we have an intercessor, someone advocating for us. We're not left on our own trying to get God's attention, hoping he'll see us so that he'll forgive us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who prays for us and intercedes for us. So this mercy seat is a place of atonement. It's a place of intercession. And finally, I want us to look at the mercy seat as the place of incarnation. The place of incarnation. The place of God's presence the mercy seat, the place where God is pleased to meet with unholy people. Where holy God is pleased to meet with unholy people. The place 
where God comes to us because we could not go to him. Now remember, the Holy of Holies was veiled off by a thick curtain. There was all kinds of symbolism here showing the people of Israel, you cannot come in here. God is holy, you are not. You'll die if you walk in there. But we know from the Gospels that when Jesus hung on that cross and his body was torn and people observed his body being torn, what they also observed during that time was the veil of the temple being torn into. Where God was demonstrating, I'm pleased in what my son is doing to provide access for you where you did not otherwise have access. You had no right to come in. And now, because of Christ, you have the right to come in. God did this not just to demonstrate what he could do, not to demonstrate, just to demonstrate his power and some of those kinds of attributes. He did this to get with you and me. He did this because he wanted to restore the relationship that we broke with our sin. God's purpose in sending the Son. Yes, it was to demonstrate his grace. Yes, it was to demonstrate his glory. Yes, it was to demonstrate his strength. It was to demonstrate who he is. But his purpose and his work was to provide a way that we could not provide for ourselves to come directly into the Holy of Holies where we could not go on our own so that we could interact with God and so that we could know him for who he is. That's what Jesus bought for you, child of God. That's what he obtained for you. That's what you get to live in and walk in. The mercy seat was not just a symbol of atonement, though it was. It was not only a symbol of intercession, though it was. It was the place where heaven met earth. You go study comparative religions, the religions of the world. Most of them have some sort of idea of this is how divine meets mortal and this is how you, you, you find some sort of greater experience. They're searching for something that God, that Moses found. They're searching for something that God granted one way, one way. There's not many ways to find the divine. There's one place where heaven meets earth and that is in Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnate Christ. We meet God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's how we get to know God. That's how we get to experience his life. And all of the abundance that comes with that, that truly comes with that. The joy, the peace, the, the freedom that it means to walk with Christ, with God, comes in Christ. It comes by way of knowing him. There's no other way. So Christ has become our mercy seat for the purpose of calling us his beloved children, for the purpose of inviting us in. I hope you see that, that the purpose of him, him having Moses design this ark at all and this mercy seat at all, the reason this system was set up at all, the, was to point to the day where Christ would die so that God could, in his holiness, 
without setting aside his purity and his justice, could look at unholy people like us and say, come in. I want you to come in. I want you to know me. And everything that that means, this is where life is found. It's found in Christ. He's our mercy seat. It's where incarnation is found. All that's left to do for us is to accept the invitation. There is nothing lacking in the atonement of Christ where we still have to pay penance in order for God to accept us and forgive us of our sin. There is nothing we need to add to the advocacy of Jesus Christ as our high priest where he will further or better accept us than he already has through our high priest, Jesus Christ. And there is nothing left for us to add to the work. It's finished. Jesus meant it when he said, it's finished. Our sin has been removed. And all that's left is for us to walk into the holy of holies as we've been invited to do. In other words, to live a life of freedom in Jesus Christ. Here's what that means. If this is right, that God, that God did all of this so that he could invite us in. That means his purpose, his heart, his, his, the thing that he was accomplishing was to get you and me to the place where we could see him for who he is and enjoy him without the hindrance of sin, without the curse of sin and death, with all of those things being removed from us so that we could have what Adam lost. We could have that relationship with the Father. It means then that when we talk about how God loves us, there's no filter to that. We have the unfortunate, we filter our ideas of love by the way we interact with other people and the way we've been treated by other people. Now, this is where it gets a little tough. I want to say to you that God's love is perfect and real and true no matter how you've been treated. And no matter what you've, your mind has been shaped to think about love, I want you to know that just because you may have been mistreated or because you don't feel very loved right now, I, I believe I can stand in the authority of the Word of God and say to you, God loves you more than you'll ever know. And then in Christ, I can walk in that. I'm invited to walk in that. The application of this message is pretty clear. If you don't know Christ, please hear me. There's nothing left for you to add to the work of Jesus for God to accept you. You should know that Christ's death on the cross was enough to cover your sin completely. It was enough for God to be pleased to look at you and say, I want you in my kingdom. I want you to be my son or daughter. I want you to be mine. And he could freely do that. There's nothing left for you to add 
except to say okay to the invitation. To trust and rest in what He's done for you. Believing that Christ took care of your sin. That God loves you and He wants you to be His. And you just trust Him for that. And you just give your life to Him. God, you take my life. I want to walk in freedom and joy. I want to walk in what it means to be a child of God. For the person who knows God, you're a Christian. But maybe you're discouraged or maybe you've forgotten just what it means that God loves you. Maybe you've heard the story of Christ so many times, it's like, okay, I heard that since I was five years old in Sunday school. I get it. Jesus died for my sin. I know. And the power and the punch of what Christ did for you maybe has been lessened as you've gone through 2020, as you've gone through whatever relational issues are back there. That sinner that said the wrong thing to you that has just stuck with you and has diminished your your self-value, whatever it is, I want you to understand that God looks at you with an open invitation of pure, unadulterated love for you. And we, because we're in Christ, we get to walk in that. We get to walk in freedom. We get to walk in joy. We get to walk in his love and in a pure, unadulterated way. I want us to know that we can confidently call ourselves children of God. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The writer's saying, hold on to this. Hold on to this. Based on what Jesus has done, based on this truth that we've talked about, don't let go of this. Because there's going to be times you're going to want to let it go. There's going to be times when you're going to forget. You're going to be discouraged. Hold fast our confession. Verse 16, let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, something the Jewish people would never have said, but since we have confidence to walk straight into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. I've committed enough sins every day since the Lord saved me to condemn me a thousand times. I have. Where's my hope? I shouldn't have any hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Jesus, my perfect atonement, my perfect intercessor, My perfect place where I can meet with God in purity. He's how. And because God wants to dwell with me, hear this. If you're discouraged this morning, hear this. 
There is no such thing as a second class child of God. There is no such thing as God's beloved people over here and then there's the rest of us just trying to get get God's attention. There's no such thing as a second class citizen in the kingdom of God. I think if we're not careful, we can kind of get this mindset that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a collection of super saints over here near the throne that get to hang out with Jesus in a way we don't. We're in the corner somewhere just trying to get the Lord's attention. And I, I want to say in the strongest of terms, that's garbage. That is garbage. When I get there, I am there because I'm in Jesus. There's no such thing as a second-rate Christian or somebody who is kind of beloved by God, or as Austin put it earlier, somebody that God begrudgingly forgives or allows in because, well, he, he promised, i got to do it. God is pleased. He's pleased to call us ch- his children. So Christ is our mercy seat. He's the place where we find complete atonement for our sins. He's the place where we find that perfect advocate for us. The one who ever lives to plead our case. He is the place where we can walk with God and know Him fully and live this life in freedom. Because of Christ, we can hold the confession of our faith Our hope, we can hold it fast without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Pray with me, please. Father, I want to thank you that Christ is our place of sacrifice, our, our place to find mercy. Forgiveness of sin. Thank you. Christ is our perfect advocate. Thank you that I could speak your name right now. And say Father. Right now. And know that I'm heard. Know that you're not going to cast me out. But you hear me. Because you hear your son Jesus. And we're accepted in the beloved. Thank you that Christ is our place of peace. Because of Jesus, you're pleased to call us your children. You love us. You allow us to get to know you. You're where we find liberty and joy. I pray that you'd help us to walk in that. If someone here doesn't know you, help them to, to discover the wonder of what it means to know you because of what Jesus has done. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.